So we are in a series, Love Walked Among Us. Um, this series is all about Jesus. So the love there is Jesus walked among us and God is love. And this is what we're talking about specifically. I've referred to this passage before and you've heard it taught because we looked at the book of Ephesians not that long ago. But in the middle of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says this in chapter 5 verse 1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The New Testament, which is this second half of the Bible, communicates constantly that what God is doing is coming after people who are alienated and separated from God because of sin, because we don't understand. And he's calling us to himself to be sons and daughters of God, children of God. He says, now, because of faith, you're children of God, like children do, imitate God. But here's the big question. The Bible also says that we can't see God. So how do we imitate a God we can't see? Well, it could come from great ideas or amazing imagination, or God could do the work and come to us in human form and say, I'm going to live amongst you as God So you know what it is to walk the way I walk, to talk the way I talk, to feel what I feel, to interact in all kinds of different situations, how you might do it. And then you'll do it in prayer, in connection with me, to be able to do it. That's Jesus. Jesus came in human form. So the way we imitate God is we imitate Jesus. Here are three things that we've said before and we're going to say again that are very important For you to understand, regardless of who you are in here, if you go, I'm not even a Christian, these three things are of essence foundational to Christianity. And if you are a Christian, these are things we're living out. The first one is this, Jesus is God. This is the baseline fundamental reality of the Christian faith. Jesus is God. Two, God is love. God is love. Now, Jesus is love walking among us. So when we see Jesus, we have to immediately say, this is what God is like. God is like Jesus. Okay, for the sake of emphasis and hopefully to get it to sink into you, um, I want you to repeat that with me. So here's what you're going to repeat. None of the three words that are up there. You're going to say, in just a second, we're going to say it together, God is like Jesus. Okay, on three. One, two two, three. God is like Jesus. So when you see Jesus interacting today in Luke chapter 8, this is God on display. Jesus is God. God is love. Here's the next one. Love one another. That's the statement, the great commandment that God gave to us is the great commandment is to love God with all your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another. Now, there is a secular Jew, meaning not even a practicing Jew, who's kind of famous. He's no longer alive. His name's Einstein. Ever heard of him? He's kind of popular. Here's what he says about Jesus. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Who's the Nazarene? Jesus. So he says, I'm enthralled by the luminous. He's trying to use language to talk about Jesus as the person is lit up. A word would be glorious. 
I'm a Jew. He's like, I don't even believe this stuff, but I'm enthralled, captured by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal. That means huge. He's too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. Hold that right there. So here's what he's saying. I don't care who tries to write and how good they are with words, and I would add whether spoken or written, Jesus is too big for it. That doesn't mean don't write about Jesus or don't speak about Jesus. I'm doing it right now. But he's saying he's way bigger than that. Then he goes on and he says, no one can read the Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, without feeling, that means feeling, without feeling the actual presence of Jesus, his personality pulsates in every word. This is what we're trying to do in this series is slow down in the Gospels long enough to feel the actual presence of Christ, to see his actual personality. So let's pray that, and then we'll get into Luke 8. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, for all who are in this room, that we would experience your actual presence that we would be captured by your real personality. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This passage today, we're gonna see how Jesus says yes to intrusion. So this is Luke chapter eight, starting in verse 40. It says, now when Jesus returned, let me just give you context really quick. Jesus had been here. Then he said, I gotta get in a boat and go to the other side. He goes in a boat, experiences this squall, huge storm, ultimately to teach his disciples a lesson in faith, only to go over to the encounter, to the other side to encounter a demon-possessed man to radically encounter that man and free him from his demon possession, and then he gets right back in the boat. I wish I could teach a message on this. But he then gets back in the boat and returns. That statement, return, I don't want you to run over too quickly because Jesus is God, right? God is like Jesus, then. God is a pursuing God. He returns. He's the one who pursued the demon-possessed man on the other side of the lake, and he's the man who returned to encounter a crowd of people. And in this scene, we'll see two individual people. But he pursues. So regardless of who you are in this room, realize this. The God of the universe, God, pursues. The, The big question is, Are you perceptive of his pursuit and are you receptive of his pursuit? But he pursues. So Jesus returns, the crowd welcomes him for they're all waiting for him. Now why is this crowd waiting for him? Well, if you follow the gospels at all, Jesus is radical in his love, he's radical in his restoration and he's radical in his healing and people like to be in environments where there's a buzz and Jesus created a buzz of all kinds, right? Some people hated him, other people loved him, other people just wanted what he had to offer, but this crowd was waiting for him. And there comes a man named Jairus. Now, you have to understand something about this crowd because 
Just down a little bit in verse 42, it'll say, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. We'll get there in a minute. But the idea of this crowd pressing around him, the word pressed literally means choked. Have you ever been in an environment where you felt like there were so many people that it choked you? So these are the people in this room who sit to the sides to just get a little more room because if you're sitting in here, you feel like you're suffocating. And these are actually pretty big seats. But have you ever been in a public environment where there's so many people that you feel like you're being choked? That's what this crowd's like. So I put an image up there just to stir your imagination or memory of what it feels like, right? It's this kind of a crowd where people are around you, you can smell their body odor, you can smell their breath, right? If you're a germaphobe, you're like, I'm sick for sure, right? Because somebody in here is sick. It's that kind of crowd. So this kind of crowd is there, but there's a man so determined to get to Jesus. This man's name Jarius, he's a ruler of the synagogue, verse 41 says. The synagogue is where the Jews taught from. So this is where Jewish people primarily went to. They went to the temple often, but they went to the synagogue all the time to be taught. This is where the Jewish religious leaders were. He's a religious ruler of the synagogue. Now, religious leader and ruler communicates he's dignified, he has dignity, he has a reputation. He cares about perception. But in this scene, he doesn't. He falls at Jesus' feet. That isn't a very religious, rulerly thing to do. Would you agree? It isn't a very dignified thing to do. He falls at Jesus' feet and he implores him. The word literally means beg. So he falls at Jesus' feet. Remember, in the midst of a suffocating crowd... A, chucking, a choking crowd, he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs him to come to his house. Why? Why is he this undignified? How is a religious ruler willing to be this undignified in the midst of a crowd of people who certainly see him? Folks, this isn't in private. This is incredibly public. He falls at his feet. He begs him to come to his house. Why? For he had an only daughter who was about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, if you're in this room and you know what it is to love someone, if you slow down long enough, you feel this moment. Desperation allows us or pushes us to not care about cultural dignity cultural boundaries and barriers, the expectations of crowds. I don't care because I love my daughter. I don't care because I don't want my daughter to die. I'll do anything. I'm not even thinking about what this looks like. In desperation, I'm imploring somebody I believe might be able to help. You know what that is. You've encountered some kind of love. Maybe it's even, and I'm not even downing you for this, maybe it's just the love for yourself of what you're willing to do on your own behalf, your own health, your own mental health, physical health, emotional health, whatever it might be. But he desperately falls at Jesus' feet and he's begging him to come to his house. His daughter's at the house, his daughter's 12 years of age and she's dying. As Jesus begins to go, now stop there. So this means 
as Jesus went, he's responding. So he engages this man that falls at his feet. Many of these people are there for these very same reasons, but he engages enough to be captured in the emotion and the reality of the moment that he begins to go. And as he goes, the people press, choke around him. So it gets even more intense. The people present themselves all around him. And now something else happens. Don't forget the scene. This is a massive crowd. The people on the farthest edges don't even know what's happening. But in the inner circle around Jesus, there's a man at his feet screaming, come to my house, begging because he has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. Jesus begins to go. The crowd presses in on him even more. And now something else happens. There was a woman. Now, Luke, who writes this book, consistently in his gospels when he presents a man will present a woman i'm not saying all the time but often a man and a woman then oftentimes luke will present a rich or established like in this case ruler with someone who's impoverished and an outcast what do you think luke's trying to do male female rich poor in crowd out crowd I won't even answer that for you, but he's presenting something very clearly. So here, it says there was a woman. You have to understand in this context, just being a woman made you in the lower class. You only had dignity as a woman if you were connected to a man, and you only had higher dignity as if he was a... Your reputation was based upon men. This is an isolated woman, so immediately she comes as an outcast. There was a woman... And now it adds to it. Not only was she a woman, but she's a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, if you're reading the narrative, you go, she had a discharge of blood 12 years. I just read 12 years because Jairus' daughter's 12 years old. So this woman's had a discharge of blood the entire life span of Jairus or Jairus' daughter. She had a discharge of blood for 12 years, which also means she was ceremonially unclean in this culture. In this Jewish culture, she couldn't go to religious services. Not only that, religious leaders couldn't touch her. Not only that, people that wanted to be faithful with God couldn't touch her or engage with her. So if this woman had had a family, they wouldn't engage her. It was like leprosy. She was unclean unclean, unclean. So she's a woman, which makes her an outcast. She's even more of an outcast because she's unclean. And now, not only that, but you'll see that she's also broke, no money. Why? Because she had spent all her living on physicians, it says. But she couldn't be healed by anybody. She spent all of her money. The text doesn't say how much money she had at the beginning, but she spent all of her money. Now, can I get a witness here? Has anybody spent a lot of money on medical expenses? Can I get an amen? Okay, so you know what this is. And many of us spend it and we're not in as desperate of a situation as this woman is. She spent all of her money. How bad does that say this discharge was? Both physically bad and socially bad. What it did to her socially may have been more horrifying than what it even did to her physically is now she didn't have people around her that were even willing to touch her. Do you realize how powerful touch is? 
it's astoundingly powerful. The willingness of somebody to just place their hand on your shoulder. Having somebody in your life that's willing to hug you. Bruno Mars, which some of you know, others of you don't know, has a song, Count On Me. And in Count On Me is, I'll always be there as a shoulder to cry on. That's a cliche. And cliches are cliches for a reason because they're true. Having a shoulder to actually cry on, having people that are willing to touch you, when you don't, it's horrific. It's hellish. In the fullest definition of the term, it's hellish. So it's physically horrible, it's socially horrible, which makes it mentally and emotionally horrible. She's an outclassed, unclean, and broke. So why would this woman move through a crowd, press through a pressing crowd, which means she's pushing people away, which means she's doing something unlawful. She's touching people she shouldn't be touching. Why is she pushing through a crowd at such a level to get behind Jesus, the text says? She'd spent all of her living on position. She could not be healed by anybody. And so she does something. And here's where the text moves. She came up behind him, that's Jesus. Now watch the number of times it says touched, and I'll tell you why. And she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? It's the second time it said touched. When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Peter's like, can we just get realistic here? Like, do you see the crowd, Jesus? You just asked who touched you. I've been touched like 2,535 times in the last five minutes. And you just asked who touched you. Right? So he's trying to get really rational with Jesus. Master, the crowd surrounds you. They're choking in on you. Now Jesus says in verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. He said, touched again, right? And when the woman saw that, she was not hidden. When she saw, I can't hide any longer, she came trembling. What's the emotion that goes along with trembling? What is it? Fear. And falling down before him, interesting, same thing that Jarius the ruler of the synagogue did, falling down before him, declares in the presence of all the people why, key, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Hold there. Why did she touch him? She told everybody why. Why? She wants healing. What is that called when you're willing to press through everything, when you have such resolve that you're willing to move through these things? The word's Desperation. This father who had a 12-year-old girl that was dying was willing to give up dignity because he was desperate. This woman here who's been bleeding for 12 years is resolved to cross barriers of legitimate behavior. We all have, all of our cultures have barriers of legitimate behavior, right? People walk into churches like this and there are, there's legitimate and illegitimate behavior. There is. That's just how cultures work. They have to work like that. And at this time, there were barriers of legitimate behavior, but she went, I don't care about barriers of legitimate behavior. I'm so desperate, I'm resolved to cross the boundaries of legitimate behavior. Why? To gain access to divine power. To God power. There's something in this man that I just want to get up behind him and just touch him. 
Because I likely think if this woman spent all her money on physicians, plural, she's gone to the best she could possibly go to, and she's gone to the most obscure things that people are like, they're quacks. They're nuts. She's tried lotions and potions and oils. Me too. I love essential oils, by the way. I wear bracelets like this. If I wear bracelets like this, you know I use essential oils, right? Um, she's used it all, and she's gone to whatever she could afford that's as close to Mayo Clinic. She does this. And now she's like, none of it worked. The passage tells us that. If I can just get to him and touch him. So now he's like, listen, someone touched me, for I perceived that power went out of me. And she's like, I'm pretty certain I was just healed. Because it says immediately the discharge of blood stopped. Folks, okay, just get the scene for a minute. Humanize the scene. Like, no one probably knows but her. But it's like, touch. Okay, I don't know what just happened. If he experienced power going out of him... It probably, I'm not saying this is sure because this doesn't say this in the text, but she likely felt power going into her, out of him, into her, and she's like, whoa. And he's like, someone touched me. Peter tries to rationalize. There's people everywhere. Nope, somebody touched me for I perceived power went out of me. And she's like, oh my gosh, if I just got healed, he certainly knows I'm here, right? Like I can't hide anymore. And now here's what starts going through her head. This is not legal. I, in touching him, have just made this holy man, Jesus, unclean. So here's the question. How's Jesus going to respond to the woman? Because he's determined to figure out who just touched him. In determining that, is he going to find the person and go, do you know what you just did? Do you understand what you just did? Do you understand how many people are here and you're unclean and you touch them and you touch me? Do you know what the law says about that? And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came terrified. Why is she terrified? Because she's done something unlawful. And falling down before him, she declares in the presence of all the people, let me tell you why I've done this, why I touched him. And I want you to know I've been healed. How does Jesus respond? Verse 48. And he said to her, daughter. Now, don't even look at the rest of it. He uses familial terminology. Like, I'm a father to a daughter. Now, slow down for a minute. What does a father's heart do with a daughter in need? What's Jairus, Jarius, depending upon how you pronounce it? What's he doing for his daughter? He's undignified. He's traveling lengths. He's pressing through crowds. He's pushing through because it's my daughter. Jesus looks at her and does he go, you screwed it up. Have you not read the book? You're not supposed to do that. Does he do that? Does he wave his finger at her? He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, I want you to understand, she gets physically healed by touching his garment. She gets fully healed here. Faith is called out in her. That the very thing you did to press through this, your resolution that came from your desperation, the starting place of faith is desperation. The starting place of faith is being poor in spirit. 
The starting place of faith is you have a need. If you can do it by yourself, go for it. Jesus is certain in time you'll realize you can't do it by yourself or you'll constantly lie to yourself that you ultimately can. The starting place of this is faith. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith is what has made you well, not just physically, but fully with God. Go in peace. So when you slow down long enough and we're going, we want to see Jesus, Jesus doesn't respond like so many of you have experienced religious institutions to respond. Jesus doesn't respond the way so many of us have experienced religious leaders. Jesus doesn't respond the way so many of us who are trying to be good Christians would respond. You know how he responds? Like a father. Like a man who sees a woman desperately in need. And he, with his power, meets her need. What's so amazing when you encounter Jesus, and you can't forget this, is that Jesus is calling all of us who may be in this room, regardless of what we believe, he's calling us to come and be loved, fully loved. He's calling us to come to him with needs, whatever they may be. If you're a parent in this room and you have a child with an issue, whether it be physical, whether it be emotional, whether it be mental, you desperately want their healing for them and for you because it's exhausting, right? It's awful. You don't want a child to die because the loss you'll experience, it's comprehensive. It isn't just one-sided, but it's them, it's you, it's your whole family, it's the reality. And when you encounter Jesus, you see him Loving. So let me just say that look at him love. Look at him see the woman. Look at him love. He loves her, but what about, uh, what about the girl, the 12-year-old girl who's dying? While he was speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Dead. Now, they didn't have the medical technology we have today, but here's the deal, folks. She was dead. So while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore, right? He's a big deal. It's over. Don't trouble him. He has bigger things to do. Look at him, love. Is Jesus willing to be intruded upon? Is Jesus willing, let's use the word, to be troubled? Is love willing to be troubled? But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe. Jairus, the religious ruler, comes because of fear that his daughter is dying. The woman comes over fear of her own condition. The woman trembles after she's been healed for fear of her reputation that she did something unlawful. Here, the daughter is dead and they're fearing and God in Christ says, do not fear, only believe, for she will be well. And when he came to the house, so he now travels to this house, he allows no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning. They were all weeping and mourning for her. They loved her. 
They deeply, deeply love this girl. So they're weeping and mourning for her, but she's dead. They're weeping and mourning because of the loss of her. And he says, don't weep, for she's not dead. She's sleeping. And they're like, well, we don't have the technology that they'll have in 2019 at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, but here's the deal. She's not sleeping. She's dead. But he says, don't weep for she's not dead. She's sleeping. They laugh at him knowing she's dead. Now look at this. Look at how he loves. Jesus takes her hand. Folks, she's dead. Now, I don't know how many of you guys know the law very well, but was it permissible to touch a dead corpse? No. What happened if you touched a dead corpse is you were unclean. But Jesus at this moment goes, I'm not worried about becoming unclean. I'm going to touch the corpse of this 12-year-old girl. He takes her by the hand and he calls saying, child. Remember what he said to the woman? How did he address her? Daughter. Here he says, child. That child is not just young one. It's familial term. My child arrives and her spirit returns. She's alive. She got up at once. Now she gets up. Everybody's like, and what does Jesus do? He directed, get her something to eat. She's got to be hungry. I love that. I mean, this is like the best. Jesus isn't like, look at me, the miracle worker, right? He's like, feed her. And then what does it say about her parents? Give her something to eat. And her parents were amazed. You know what that means? Literally dumbfounded, beside themselves. Are you kidding me? Like she's alive? She'd been sick and dying and now she's alive. They're amazed. But he charges them, don't tell anyone what had just happened. Look at how he loves. He loves with sight. He loves with his time. He loves with touch. Even when there's barriers that say, don't touch these people, he allows them to touch him and he touches them. Jesus is constantly consistent with his character and his character is the character of God. God is like Jesus and God is a lover. God is a redeemer. God is a restorer. God is a savior at every level. So if you sit in this room right now and you go, I have huge needs But would I trouble God with those? Would he even care about those? Would he even care about my joblessness? Would he care about my daughter's mental health struggles? Would he care about my troubled marriage? Would he care about the addictions of my child? Would he care about my aspirations? Would he care about my dreams? Is God willing to be troubled with my stuff? That's who God is. In his very character. It's not how just how he acts. He acts that way because it's who he is. God, Jesus is God, right? That means God is like Jesus. He's saying, come to me with your stuff. Come be loved. And then he's also saying this, come to love. Because when you look at Jesus, you look at God returning to us. You look at God pursuing us. But you also see God saying, this is how you love. So when I call you to love one another the way I have loved you, follow me as dearly beloved children, imitate me, Ephesians 5. We have to come to him to get the power to love. Love's hard, right? 
Love's confusing. What in this situation is love? What's not love? When do I love honestly? When do I love compassionately? When do I love by creating space? When do I love by moving forward? He goes, ask me. You need my power. We're teaching this series, church, because we so desperately want to say, God, we want to do the stuff you called us to do. And ultimately, the stuff, we don't know when it's that we put hands on somebody to pray for them, whether they'll be healed or not. But we do know, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And we do know that kind of stuff, the stuff we want to see, true transformation, true love, costly love, willing to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of other people, takes the power of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my favorite preachers of all time. And he says this, and we too must become aware of that. We have got to feel it until we become desperate. He's talking about the presence of God. We must ask ourselves how we can succeed if we do not have this authority. How do we succeed if we don't have God? How? How do we love true love? Because God is love, defined by God love, not by defined by the culture. How do we do this if we don't have the authority of God? How do we do this if we don't have this commission of God? If we don't have this might, this strength, and this power? Folks, we're not just talking about how does a big church love, which we are talking about that. We're talking about how do you do it today, this afternoon. We must become utterly and absolutely convinced of our need. We can't do this on our own. We must cease to have so much confidence in ourselves. Okay, this is true for us as Redemption Arizona. It's true for us as Redemption Gilbert. It's true for our small groups and our ministries. It's true for our families whoever you are. It's true for you as an individual and as a single. It's true for us in our marriages. It's true in our workplaces. We must cease to have so much confidence in ourselves and in our methods and our organizations and in all of our slickness, Lloyd-Jones says. We've got to realize that we must be filled with God's spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We must realize that we must be filled with God's Spirit and we must equally be certain that God can fill us with His Spirit. Not just that we need it, He'll do it. He says, ask me. Nothing greater you can ask. Ask for the Spirit. How much more will God give His Spirit to those who ask? We have got to realize. He's British, that's why it's an S, not a Z. We've got to realize that however great this kind is, the power of God is infinitely greater. Okay, here's what Lloyd-Jones is saying. Self-help books can be helpful. Christian books that give you great principles, helpful and wise. But realize this, if you put those here, you're going to be let down. Put those to the side as you pursue the power of God because it's infinitely greater. What we need is not more knowledge, more understanding, more apologetics, that means defenses. Let me tell you why Christianity is true. We don't need more reconciliation of philosophy and science and religion and all modern techniques. We need a power that can enter into the souls of men and women and break them, smash them, and humble them, and then make them anew. Jarius and this woman were smashed. They were humbled, and they came to Christ to be made anew. That's just fact. Folks, bottom line, that's Christianity. Christianity without Christ, trying to do the things of God without the Spirit of God, is atheism. It's not reality. 
Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Amen?